Well, if you have your Bibles, we'll continue to worship the Lord through His Word. And I would invite you to open your Bibles up uh, or your phones to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be reading verses 2 through 16. And I want to consider this morning uh, man and woman in worship. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, Jesus. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. In some translations, she has authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God in worship with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. Let's pray. I see y'all laughing. <laughs> hey, it's a hard text, and we're going to lean into it. So uh, I'll give some context here shortly. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you're good. And we have just sung, Lord, you will deliver us from all of our enemies. What a beautiful reminder, Lord, that you're kind and strong and powerful and present. And Father, we need you, who has redeemed us in Jesus, to also give clarity of thought and humility of heart. There are so many different ways uh, this passage has been misused, and above all, we would desire to see Jesus. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want a list of sources, please reach out to me. Uh, I'm, I'd be happy to give you maybe the 10 sources that I've worked through uh, over the past two weeks. But I want to start with this. I never had roommate issues in college. My junior and senior year, my little brother and I were roommates. Uh, my sophomore year, I roomed with a childhood friend from Jackson. He graduated from Jim Hill, just like I did, and I recruited him to Alabama A&M to play soccer with me there, and 
we roomed and we just, we never got into it. And the Lord was really kind to me, even freshman year. I roomed with a complete stranger and his name was Ron. And Ron was an engineering major just like me. And Ron was in honors college just like me. And Ron um, um, was a student athlete just like me. And so we, we just, we got along. And uh, Ron was an upperclassman. And so I was a freshman and Ron was a junior. And the ways that he was kind to me, um, till this day, I still remember him. I did not have a car, and Ron would give me his car or let me catch a ride to the grocery store. But Ron became my de facto academic advisor. You see, Ron was two years ahead of me, and Ron had just finished his core engineering courses. And so when I was making my schedule out, Ron will look at my schedule. No, 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 you can't take him. You got to take her for this class. Just trust me on it, brother, right? And Ron did that. For, for four semesters, I was still calling Ron, like, Ron, who do I take and who do I avoid? And I'll never forget it. It was Calculus 2, and Ron was taking Cal 2, which is, if you've taken those higher maths, I still think it was the hardest one. And Ron was laboring with Cal 2 staying up late, and finally Ron got a D out of Cal 2, and he had to retake it again, and so Ron told me, he says, hey, whatever you do, don't take this professor. Avoid him. The class is at 8 o'clock. He's impatient. The subject is hard, and man, he just learned English, and I don't know what he's saying. And so as you can imagine, when it was my turn to take Cal 2, what did I do? I'm listening to Ron, right? We ain't going to take it here. So I, I avoided taking that professor altogether. In fact, I didn't even take Cal 2 at Alabama A&M. I took it at Jackson State over a summer. Why? It was too hard. And I avoided that teacher. I mention that because this is one of those passages that's hard. It's really hard. I'm going to tell you why it's hard. And this is just like maybe seven or eight reasons it's hard. It's hard because of our cultural moment. Because of toxic John Wayne pseudo-masculinity, anytime some of us hear headship, we want to put our hands in our ears, right? It's also hard because of the rise of radical feminism that, that seeks to obliterate any and every distinction between man and woman. And so when you talk about this, neither side wants to hear what Paul is saying. It's also hard because of the cultural practices. Not one of you women in this room Enter here wearing a veil this morning. And there are some of you in this room who are men who wear your hair long. My son will not let me cut his mohawk. And some of you have had dreads and you have, my dad, he got long hair, right? And some of you women have short hair. And so when you read this, you can walk away with this complete disconnect to the cultural practices of the day. 
Furthermore, there are some translation difficulties in the passage. For one, there is no separate Greek word for man and husband or wife and woman. And so when you read this text, whenever you see wife or you ever, whenever you see woman, it's the same Greek word. And we're having to figure out, is he talking to wives or women or husbands or men? You also see that a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head in verse 10. Guess what? I've looked at it. I've worked through the text. Symbol isn't even in the Greek. Paul could be saying a woman's hair is her covering. And if he's saying that, then the issue is how women were wearing their hair. Was it pinned up, right? It says that a man should not cover his head, but, but if you look at the, the, the Greek carefully, it actually says that the man, his hair is long, right? And so we're making all types of decisions here. The word for head is used different ways. That, that, that at Sometimes it does mean your literal head. At other times, it's headship, the one who is over authority over you. If you read our denominational report, it's 60-something pages, and I've read it word for word. If you read the Presbytery of Mississippi Valley's report on the same thing, which is half the size, they disagree on the issues here. And then you have Peter, the Apostle Peter. These are the last words that Peter wrote. Give them to me, Andre. This is what Peter writes about Paul, our beloved brother, Paul. We love this guy. He wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks them in these matters. Look at what I put in red. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. But you, beloved, knowing this, take care that you're not carried away by their actions. Rather, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And you hear nothing else from Peter. The last thing Peter writes is about some of Paul's stuff that's hard. And it's so hard when some people read it, they then do a judo move on it and twist what's complicated to make it fit their own agenda. And guess what? Both sides can do it. Both sides can take what is complex and reduce it to fit in their camp and write off the complexity of the scripture. That's not what we're doing this morning. We're going to be humble and we're going to ask Jesus, how are you growing me in knowledge and grace with respect to your word? Lucy Pepiot, she writes, this passage is notorious for being one of the most problematic texts in the New Testament. It has caused bewilderment, disagreement among Christians, and the majority of us will simply ignore it. We're not going to ignore it. We're going to dive into it. And if you are visiting with Redeemer, we make a practice of preaching through books of the Bible. So I did not randomly decide to talk about this today. We just kind of preach what the scriptures say and we wrestle with it and we consider it. 
And then we go home and let the Holy Spirit continue to do what he's doing. And this is the passage in, for, in front of us. Our confession that Wilson led us in says that not all scripture is plain and clear. But what is essential to salvation is so clear that you can have a Ph.D. or a GED or no degree and you can still understand it. And that's how good God is. Complex and simple. So there's a lot of stuff here. But I want to hone in on three things that I think are so clear it would be foolish to deny them. What's clear in the text? The first thing that's clear in the text is that they are having hardship with headship. Hardship with headship. That it's, it's, it's working a number on these Christians. Now, notice how the text begins. Paul says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain traditions as I delivered you. So, so notice that there is a, a commendation first. So Paul is actually saying there are some common truths that are true in all the churches. And, and, and you, Corinthians, remember them as well. But I have a thing with you right here. So it could be that there is a principle that they're trying to work out, but then they're going too far. And I think, and I can't prove it, but I think the principle is laid down in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are one in Christ Jesus. You are all Abraham's offspring. So do you hear that? There's neither Jew nor Greek. You're one in Jesus. You're neither slave nor free. You're one. You're neither male nor female. You're one. You have equal standing and value and worth in Jesus, and none of those things commend you to him, right? But here's where I think they're getting off. In this unity, they're struggling to remember that some things have not been unchanged, namely gender distinctions between man and woman and this authority structure that is, that is sort of etched in the cosmos. And this is a big structure. I mean, it, it goes all the way back to Genesis that you have our triune God, and then you have man and woman in the image of God made under him, and then you have them supposedly having dominion over everything that's not God, over the angels, over creation. And here's what happens, right? Because of the fall, the second person of the Trinity inserts himself in that cosmos, right? And, and, and he becomes our head. And so we now have access to the father through the son. So that's there. And it, it seems like this church, because of this, the newness of the gospel, they're wanting to jettison that. Now, you'll notice that this text offers correctives to men first and then the women. So notice what it says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Well, who is his head? Look at verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. 
Look at verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, dishonors her head. Well, who is her head? Go look at verse 3. The head of every wife is her husband. And so this is an issue. Whatever's Paul addressing, he's not just addressing the women. He's addressing the men and the women. It's as if he's trying to say both men and women, you are getting headship wrong. Now, to get at what we, I promise you we're going to circle back to headship. But we got to get an understanding around hair and shaved heads and veils and like glorious long, like, like what is this thing about hair? Let's talk about men and head and hair. The Bible says very little about what a man's hair communicates. Proverbs says a man's gray hair communicates wisdom. So that means your pastor is kind of wise, right? (laughs) Maybe not, right? But we also know in Scripture that men could take a Nazarite vow. And if a man took a Nazarite vow, then what was not to touch their hair? A razor. Somebody said it on this side. Right? So if you took a Nazaritic vow then you vow not to put a razor to your head, which seems to me to imply that if you were not a Nazarite man, then your hair was cut if you were Jewish. Maybe it wasn't like the long and flowing stuff you see on TV. Like maybe if you were a Jewish man, there was a distinction. Here's what we do know, and this is factual, Andre. This is the pic, this is the, you see the apex that's on that man's head, and you see the point that's on the point of it, that, that if you were in Corinth or any of the sort of the, the, the Greco-Roman world and you worshiped other gods, then this would be synonymous with, with a, a religious leader who was masculine. You would walk around everywhere with this covering on your head pointing to Jupiter and, and what you were, when you wore this, you were submitting to headship to the gods. All right? So we know that that was kind of going on. All right, thank you, Andre. There's more data about women and hair. Here's a photo, and this is from history, and that is actually a woman with a white blouse on, and that's a child and a woman and two men and a barber around her. And this woman's hair has been shaved. Now notice that it's the community, men and women and children. I could show you other pictures, but for time I won't. Why is her hair being publicly shaved? It's because she was found out to have been sleeping with a Nazi man. And what they would do, man or woman, men had similar public disciplines, but if you were a woman and you sided with the enemy, then you were put in the public square and men and women shaved your head as a sign of shame. All right? Thank you, Andre. We also know from the Bible, Genesis 24, Numbers 5, 1 Peter 3, Go read Genesis 24. It's an arranged marriage between Rebekah and Isaac. Abraham tells his servant, go find my son a bride. And the servant goes and finds Isaac a bride and brings 
Rebecca back. And guess what? Isaac ain't never met Rebecca. She is in this wagon or on, I don't know how they get there, right? But when she gets there, she sees this man in the field and she asks the servant, who is that man? The servant tells her, that's my master, Isaac. And as soon as she realizes it's Isaac, guess what she does? She covers up. Wait a minute. You were with the servant man for hours and days and you were uncovered. Why are you covering up when you realize that this is your soon-to-be husband? Something is going on there with a veil and honor, right? You get to Numbers chapter 5. If a woman was suspected of adultery, not caught in the act, but suspected, then she would have to go to the priest, and guess what the priest would do? He would mix dust and water and read the curses, and the woman would have to recite the curses and drink the water. But before she did that, guess what happened to her hair? She had to let it down. Letting the hair down signified breaking trust or faith with your husband. Y'all tracking with me? Now, what does all of this have to do with the passage a lot. A lot. So this week I was in Starbucks working and two women walked in. One woman wore a hijab and one woman didn't. And I tried not to be like the weird dude just kind of looking at them, right? And so I'm up here working trying to write on this and then I see them walk in and I look up, I smile, I put my head back down. Then they go outside and they talk for 20 minutes and I'm up here reading a book on why women veil. And finally, it felt like the Holy Spirit saying, bro, you're going to read a book. Why don't you just go talk to the women? And so I got up from my desk and walked outside. I said, excuse me, I'm a pastor and I'm writing on veiling and I don't understand. Do you mind if I sit with you and ask you a few questions? And those women says, yes, please sit. And one was a Muslim from Sudan, and I prayed for what's happening in Sudan right there. The other one was a Muslim from Palestine. And I asked a woman who was African, I said, why do you veil? And the first thing she said was safety. In my country, it is unsafe. If I don't veil, I can be attacked and flirted with. Why else do you veil? Modesty. Only my husband and family see my hair. But when do you take it off if I'm at home or if I am in settings where it's only women? I wear it to honor him. Now, right? So this is like from somebody. Now, what does it have to do with the passage? It reads as if the Corinthian men were wearing long hair, which could have been synonymous with sending signals that they were same-sex attracted. And this, this is within the realm of possibility because Paul has just written that, 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 and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. And who was on that list? Men who practice homosexuality. So Murphy O'Connor says that that could be what's happening. But we also know that that, that 
pagans went into the worship of pagan gods, men would cover. And so it could be that these men coming out of paganism are still covering their heads. And what Paul is actually saying is you have a new head and his name is Jesus. Take that off of your heads. Which pagan deity died for you? And if he's talking about these men with long flowing hair, you were this, but you have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. Look like who you are. Right. He could be saying this to the men and he could be saying to the women who want to jettison headship like it's spoiled milk. Ain't no husband die for me. I wash his draws. Right. He didn't get on my cross, right? I mean, really, like, you can have that kind of attitude where all they want to do is shed anything that looks like they need to be in submission to any human walking the earth. And what Paul is saying to both of them is like, time out. There are some things that have radically changed in the gospel, but there are some things that have not, and it's headship. It's this order and structure that's embedded in redemption. They're having a hard time. The the hair was just the outward sign of an inner struggle. And I know, right, we live in a day and an age that has a lot of confusion over men and women and gender distinctions. I get it. And the temptation is to think that the sky is falling, the world is coming to an end, and this is new. It's not new. They were struggling with this in Paul's day. And we wrestle with it in our day. And they're going to be wrestling with it in a thousand years. And you know why? Because if you read your Bibles carefully and go back to the first transgression in the garden when man and woman, Adam and Eve, transgressed and believed the lying, conniving serpent when God began to issue out judgment, yes, you're going to die now. And yes, you have to be kicked out of the garden and I'm going to put angels there that's going to guard your way so that you can't come back in here. And Satan, you're going to crawl on your belly and, and, all, and, and you're going to be defeated. But then woman and man, man, by the sweat of your brow, you will work. Thorns and thistles will come out of the ground and you're going to return back to it. And Eve, oh Eve, your desire now is going to be for your husband. You will envy his power and you will want to usurp and rule over. And you, Adam, never, ever created to rule over a woman. You're to rule creation, not her. And what you're going to do is lord your power and misuse it and tear her heart apart. And th- that, that's there at the beginning. And that's what you see being being outworked right here. It just looks like hair and it looks like coverings. But the issue underneath the issue is the consequence of our sin. Man and woman have been rebelling against one another and hurting one another and sinning against God from the beginning. They're having a hardship with headship. 
Now, which moves us to the second point. What are the consequences of the confusion? The consequences of the confusion. I want to start broad and then get narrow. Their confusion and conflict around this matter is distracting, it's distorting, and it's dishonoring. All right. Distracting from what? Let me let you in on the secret. It's not a secret. It's plain, actually. 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14, they form a unit. And everything that Paul is talking about in 11 through 14 has to do with worship. You, you got to get it. This is about worship, what they're doing in worship. And then you get after this text, you get what? The Lord's Supper. And then you get the spiritual gifts and tongues and prophecy and love and all of this stuff. But it's in the context of worship. And then you finally get Paul at the end of chapter 14. He says these words. Let all things, when you gather together for worship, be done decently and in order. So these chapters are about worship. Now let that shape what you see. Here's the scene. You walk into worship, and it wouldn't have been a building like this because they had house churches then. But upon entry, you notice men with long hair or their heads covered. And you notice women with their hair down and not up and covered, it would be the equivalent of me coming up here and wearing a dress in the pulpit. And I don't care how faithful I was to the text, guess what? My attire is speaking louder than my words because I'm taking a symbol from the culture that communicates one thing, but I'm dressing myself in that. And so that you're coming in here thinking that you're going to see me looking like a man in the pulpit. And yet I look like a woman. I don't care what I say. That what you're distracted from is the worship of God. And that's what Paul is saying, that when people come here, they ought to be hearing about Jesus. They ought to be hearing about his life. They ought to be hearing about his death. They ought to be hearing about his goodness and his kindness. They ought to be hearing about this beautiful community. And what the first thing they see before you say a word is a sign that points to something else. It's distracting from worship. And this is a, by way of application that we must all, not just those in front, be mindful of what happens here. Does it distract from worship? Does it take people's eyes and hearts away from worship? So there's a guy by the name of Nate Robinson, and I'm not talking about the NBA player. I'm talking about a drummer, and he goes by the name The Beat Breaker. He's a two-time Grammy-winning musician. He's toured with Angie Stone, Tyler Perry, but he's most famous for being a drummer for Lecrae. And when he produced his first album, he entitled it Heard But Not Seen. Heard But Not Seen. So he's the guy in the back, in the drum cage, you can't see. 
And Lecrae is the guy that's up front, that's making noise. But here he is in the, in the drummer's chair in the background. And that's a message for us that as we think about worship, that we are not the focus of worship. We're here to be heard, but the people's gazes need to be chiefly upon the God they can't see by faith. H.B. Charles, if you've watched anything, if you watched him, he is famous for preaching in what? Black suits, black jacket, white shirt, black tie, black shoes, black belt. That's what he preaches in all the time. And he got asked, why do you preach in the same thing all the time? And he has a big commentary on it, but he ends up saying, we need preachers to look like preachers. Not fitness coaches, not talk show hosts, not GQ models. Who cares who your tailor is, your sock ministry, or your shoe game? <laughs> right? You get it? I'm just here to preach. Don't, don't be looking at what I got on and trying to add up my suit. I'm, I'm just here to get out of the way. And that's a message for us all. Let's not be distracting from the Lord in worship. But it, it, it's also more. It also distorts the new kingdom that has come for those still living in the old kingdom. I said it a few weeks ago that Paul never envisions the church being a holy huddle. He always envisions the church being a body of people who gather, whose lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ in the gospel, so much so that they become this peculiar people. They're saints, but they reside in Corinth. And so when the average Corinthian looks at Christians, they see that we live differently. We befriend people in the world who we be enemies with right? We have practices in the church, in the world that looks foolish. We actually give of our money to a kingdom. We actually say we're sorry. We actually walk with humility. We actually bow the knee to a king who has overcome the grave that we can't see. Like the world looks at us and they see something different. And so Paul is going to later write, hey, if all of y'all are in church and all y'all do is speak in tongues, tongues this, tongues that, tongues this, and an unbeliever cracks the door, and if they walk into your fellowship and they see the confusion, will they not say you're crazy? He says, don't do that. In the same fashion, if unbelievers walk into the church and men are not living repentantly and pursuing Jesus and submitting to Jesus and looking and acting and talking like Jesus and women in the church don't look and act and behave and talk like Jesus. But if we in the church begin to look and talk like the world, then when the world comes into this fellowship, they see absolutely nothing different. And when we are fighting over headship stuff and at each other and not being who God made us to be, that's exactly what the world does. And we don't look peculiar and different. It distorts and it also dishonors Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, Jesus. 
A man who wears his hair long is a disgrace for himself. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven, right? It is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair. Paul is actually saying, hey, what we do around this matter does not just distract from God. It does not just distort for the unbelievers. We actually wound ourselves and one another and our head. And so, man, if you are not bowing the knee to your head, Jesus, you're hurting and disgracing him. And woman, if your hair is down and uncovered, and in the world that sends signs that you're unmarried, what does that do to your husband? You're not honoring him. This is the consequences. These are consequences of their conflict. Distortion, dishonor, and distraction. Which moves us to our final point. What if it were possible for man and woman to experience something that is so cosmic? So cosmic. That we can celebrate our differences. And we can rejoice in our equality. And we can make much of our interdependence and our God-given indispensability together. Like, Like what if something was so cosmic that we could celebrate differences between man and woman? Equality between man and woman and interdependence and indispensability of man and woman. The cosmic redemption of Jesus begins to set things right between man and woman now. The cosmic redemption of Jesus begins to set things right between man and woman now. For Paul, this is not a dream. It's a reality. That Paul believes that the salvation and redemption of Jesus impacts everything, including how we relate to one another as husband and wife and man and woman. Now, let's go back to the garden. Remember what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned and they will die. They were kicked out of the garden with angels guarding their way. They can't get back in unless someone dies. The ground is cursed. The demonic have been opened up and now the demons are over us, tormenting us. I mean, a serpent. We think that Satan was a, an angel who fell and, and, and corrupted us. And so even he who should be under us usurps us and tempts us to make us get out of line, right? That, that's cosmic. And you tell me one of those things that Jesus has not addressed. You're going to die, but I'm the resurrection and the life that those who believe in me, though they die, they will live forever. You don't have to be afraid of dying. And yes, you were kicked out, but I'm going to lay my body on a cross and be obliterated that you might be brought back in by faith. 
And you are now not a slave. You are a son and a daughter in the family of God. I got that checked. And what about the relationship between you and the angels that torment you? Didn't I just tell you, says Paul, y'all are going to judge angels one day. What? You mean to tell me your redemption is so cosmic that the demons that torment us now, we're going to reign over them. Right? And guess what? That tension between man and woman that goes back to the garden. Oh, yeah. I'm going to deal with that, too. You godly man. I'm going to get in there and put Holy Spirit inside of you. And you will joyfully die to serve your wives. You will wash them in the word. You will be the first to die, the first to sacrifice, the first to lead. You have union with Adam, but you have union with me. And you woman, you daughter of Eve, you beautiful, godly, glorious woman. I know it's hard, but I'm going to make you different. And you're going to trust. And you're going to celebrate your God-given difference. And you're going to use your gifts. And you will allow people to lead. I'm going to do them both. And that's exactly what you see. Paul believes that because the second person of the Trinity inserted himself into our world, he knows what it's like to submit. He knows what it's like to lead. He knows what it's like to be God, very God of very God. And then to say, Daddy, I've come not to do my will, but yours. And he comes. And notice what Paul believes. He believes that that message goes to both men and women, and it radically changes us. Did you notice difference? Paul says, men, short hair, don't cover. Women, long hair and cover. What applies to one does not apply to the other. In other words, Paul is actually saying, yes, you are different. Man, head of woman, Christ, head of man. God overall. He embraces the fact that men and women in the body must do the dance of difference. And we work out what that is. But that's not it. He says men and women must also do the dance of equality. Did you catch? Look at this. And I want you to look closely at the text. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Did, you, did it ever stop to dawn on you that there's equality right there? That the, the man is praying and prophesying in the context of worship, and the woman is praying and prophesying in the context of worship, 
They do it differently, but does not Joel say, in those last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh, your daughters and your sons, daughters and sons, right? So something about equality is happening right here. Paul doesn't flesh out prophesying, so we won't flesh it out here. We'll get to it later. But sons and daughters together using gifts in the, light of the, church, in, the, in the life of the church to build the church up and to testify of God's goodness together. We've got to do the dance of equality, figuring out the ways that we showcase this in the body. And then man and woman are interdependent and indispensable. Notice what Paul says in 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, and that's the key, in the Lord, not in the world, but in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Man, for woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. That's interdependency. Not a man in this room was born from a man. You were carried in the womb of a woman. And not a woman in this room got pregnant by just a woman. You see the interdependency that's happening? Interdependent and indispensable. I'll close with this. Let's assume that a woman walked into this church with no dignity in Corinth. She'd live a rough life, and because of the culture in the world, she could not veil. She was not a woman of honor. And she walks into the church, and she is handed a veil. And she looks and says, no, I can't wear that. I'm not worthy. And the man and the woman shake their heads and say, yes, put it on, sister. And the man and the woman tell this woman, you're in a new society in here. Your sins are forgiven. You trust in Jesus. He makes you new. You have dignity here. Put the veil on. In here, we're different. In here, we're equal. In here, we're interdependent. May that be true for us. May the cosmic redemption of Jesus touch how we relate husband and wife and man and woman in this body. May we be different and celebrate difference. May we be equal and rejoice in our equality. And may we celebrate our interdependency. We image Jesus together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And may we not, Lord, not be those who twist it to fit our agenda. But may we, including me, Lord, approach this passage with sacred trembling and humility. Father, if what has been uttered is not of you, may it be forgotten. If it is of you, may it be non-forgettable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, saints.